Toby and Courtney and their three children and Jared Williams, Dina Bailey and some others from Trinity departed and drove to Chicago. I got there, I think, about 8.30, 9 o'clock last night. Um, got settled in. But this morning, they're waking up. They're going to attend church there with Armitage Baptist Church. They're in a suburb of Chicago. And then this coming week, they're going to help out with their outreach ministry. Um, I think they may be doing some construction activities, but they're going to be helping out with their day camp that they do, um, seeking to encourage the church, seeking, seeking to help the church, and just seeking to aid in the church doing some outreach and trying to reach um, that community. They have a large segment of um, was it ESL, I guess would be a terminology, English as their second language. There's a lot of Puerto Ricans, a lot of Cubans that are there in the area. And so um, there is an opportunity for them to minister and to help with the stuff that is going on there. I think uh, Nick and Kristen Hunt and their family, uh, Charla Ann, my mother, um, went. Um, there may have been a few others that went. But just please remember to pray for them this week. Um, as they're there, and just as they are working, um, they're not going to be sleeping in their beds. They're not going to be doing their normal routines, doing their normal things. And when, quite honestly, when you bring a number of people together that don't live together, sometimes there's opportunities for just crankiness and just sometimes hard to get along with and those are just facts of life um, when we go to Mexico I just try to make it where they're so tired by the end of the day that they don't they don't have any energy to fight or argue it's just let's just go go to bed but please please remember them as they're in Chicago they're going to be coming home this next Sunday um, some point but they're going to be up there all this week um, serving ministering representing not only First Baptist but Trinity and just the community in Wellston I mean they're going to be ministering and representing the kingdom of God here from this part of the, uh, the, the area of Oklahoma. So please, please remember them as they are going. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning. If you do, I want you to take it with me and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Hopefully when you came in, you got a bulletin. On the back of that bulletin, there's going to be some notes. If you want to use those notes to follow along as we study God's Word together this morning. But 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to pick up pretty much where we left off last Sunday morning. I'm really a big proponent of just walking through passages of Scripture, verse by verse. It's one of those things that when you're walking through, you can't be accused of cherry picking. You can't be accused of somebody walking in and, oh, that preacher was preaching to me this Sunday because I had no idea that half of you were going to be here. I just knew that this is the next passage in the scripture that we're going with. So 1 Peter chapter 1, in a few moments, we're going to start in verse 3 um, and go through verse 9 this morning, but hope you have a Bible, something to look on, and if you want to take notes, feel free to do that. If you were to come to our house and you were to go back to the boys' domain, their, their bedroom, there's two sets of bunk beds in the bedroom, and under each set of bunk beds, there is anywhere from six to eight totes. Now, the totes aren't very big because they have to fit underneath the bunk beds, but they're these white Walmart totes. They're, they're about yay wide, and they're probably about that long, and I can't remember if there's six or eight of them, but they're stuffed underneath the bed, so they're out of the way, but, and each tote is filled it's filled with toys. One toad is nothing but Legos. Another toad is Lincoln Logs and other building materials. Another toad is action figures. Another toad is this. And there is totes all throughout the bed. And you can imagine if you have five boys, you've collected quite a few toys over the years. 
Then if you were to leave from the bedroom, you're going to the closet. Well, the closet has a whole other treasure trove of toys. We have actually have a treasure chest. And then we've actually got walls or, or, or shelving built into the wall. And you've got more toys and more items and more noisy things and more other things that seem to collect and to become clutter. I mean, there is just toys after toys after toys there in that domain. Then if you were to leave there, you could go and I could show you more toys stashed throughout the house. Ezra has his little favorite stash where he likes putting toys at. Micah is soon to follow. But it never fails, no matter what the age of the child is, they'll be sitting there and they'll be playing with the toy and the toy will break. And that child will come to their parent, and you will know this if you've had, if you've had children or grandchildren, but that child will come to you distraught because that toy is broken. Daddy, fix it. Daddy, this doesn't work. Daddy, this won't do what I want it to do. And they'll be so distraught and they'll be so upset when they bring it to the adult, wanting the adult to do something. Now, I don't know about you. You all are much more compassionate than I am. Because my first response is, well, go pick one of the other 10,000 toys you got and go play with that. I mean, I don't care. Good, this thing finally broke. Finally, we get to be rid of it. I am so grateful. One less to have to send you off with to college. So I am just ecstatic at the idea that something broke. But in that person's mind, that person is distraught, distracted, and burdened. Because that one, that one toy was broken in light of everything else that they have. I've been in church services. God's blessed me enough. I've been able to be a part of church services in Mexico, Ecuador, and India. And you get in these church services. And many of these church services, sometimes they just have a tarp. Like you would tarp down something on a trailer. Just a blue tarp that is strung across with some string. They've got some old, old school metal chairs that are just sitting there. Those folding metal chairs. People get there. There is no air conditioning. There is no lighting. There is no noise amplification. They're underneath the tarp. Many of them are not underneath the tarp. And they're sitting there having church. And they're just so excited because they get to be in church. The first church service I was a part with in India, it was actually at a person's house, and there was no chairs anywhere. Everybody was sitting on the floor. I was there helping with Trinity, and so Lane was over there in the corner preaching through an interpreter, and there were people in this room on the floor, there were people in hallways on the floor, in another room in the floor, and everybody was just excited because they got to be in the same building where the service was happening. You know, sometimes in church, we start getting distraught because the air conditioning isn't as cool as we'd like. Because the chairs aren't as comfortable as we'd like. Sometimes we can be like that child and those one little things distract us, discourage us, or burden us. The first church that God called me to pastor, we did not have a Janet Humphrey that would play the piano so beautifully. We did not have a musician, period. And the gentleman that had volunteered to lead us in music was tone deaf. So you would get there and he would open the hymnal and then he would, I believe he was doing the best he could, but he didn't have a lot to work with. And he would lead us. And I remember sitting there going, how in the world are we ever going to have any kind of a spiritual movement when we begin in this way? And then one time God said, you've got a place. You've got people. You've got my word. God doesn't care about the tone of the song. He said, make a joyful noise. He doesn't say, make a pretty noise. And yet it can be easy for us to get distracted and divided and discouraged or burdened because, as you see at the top of your notes, we often miss what we have for we don't have. And we're living in a day and age, friend, that we can get very easily fixated on what we don't have. We may not have 
the politics that we want. We may not have the government that we want. We may not have the society that we want. We may not have the kind of people around us that we want. We may not have the job that we want. We may not have things that we want, but so easy it is for us to get focused on what we don't have, and we end up missing what we do have. The old analogy, the old uh, little uh, quote goes like this. We miss the forest for the tree. And this morning, as we are here this morning, and Peter is writing to that early church there in Asia Minor, and by extension, he's writing to us. He wants to remind us of what we have. There's some commonalities that no matter who you are in the room, no matter your income in the room, no matter your background, your chronological age, there are some things that unite us that we all have. Now Peter is writing to a church there in Asia Minor that is struggling. They are struggling both in just spiritual direction, spiritual understanding. They're struggling socially because there's expectations and there's distractions and there's persecution that are coming on them socially. They're being drawn in a lot of different directions. A lot of people are asking questions about what this means and what that doesn't mean. There's being a lot of challenges to their faith and what they believe. They're sitting there in a time and age that they're struggling to understand what does it mean to be a Christian today. I don't know if you've ever asked that question, but we are talking about that with the youth just this morning in Sunday school. What does it mean to be a Christian today? So what Peter does, as he already started his introduction in verse 1 and 2, he then moves down to verse 3, and he wants to remind them, before he ever gets to the bulk or the body of the letter, he wants to remind them of who they are. We talked about it last Sunday as far as who we are in Christ, and this morning I want to remind you of what we have in Christ. Who we are in Christ and what we have because that is going to set the tone for everything else he is going to do. And just as in last week, I want to be quick to just compassionately tell you that these are promises that he is giving to the believers. These are not promises that he is giving to every single person, both lost and saved. These are promises exclusive to the believers. So as you're here this morning, if you know whether you've admitted it or not, if you know that you're not saved this morning, I want you to hear from me that these promises are available to you, but are not yours yet until you are saved. But at the same time, if you're in this room and then you know that you are saved, you have something to be excited about because these promises are true about you. And every once in a while, it doesn't It's not a sin to get excited about being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not a sin to be excited about being around God's people. It's not a sin to think about listening to God's word. There's nothing sinful about it. And sometimes we need to get excited. And I think sometimes we get excited when we remind ourselves who we are and what we have. So let me start in verse 3 and let's pick this apart. And let me just point out to you for the sake of time, let me point out to you three promised possessions that Peter reminds us of. The first one is that we have hope. We have hope. Look in verse 3 and look how Peter writes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now how your translations read, how your copy of God's Word reads, mine has an exclamation point there. That's as if, if that is in the fact that Peter is making a point. Glory to God. Praise God. Thank God. He's making a point to say, let's orientate ourselves that this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about Wellston. This isn't about a church community. This is all about... 
about God. What we do here chiefly is to be centered upon God. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes that emphatic. And then he says, why? Why should we be so excited about God? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice he says this picture of this hope. This hope that he mentions all the way back up there in verse 3. He said we are born again to a living This living idea says it is not something dead. It is not something dated. It is not something that is past tense. It is not something that is future tense. It is something today. In other words, brothers and sisters, you have something to hope in today. This is not something that you could have hoped in yesterday. It's not something that you could have hoped in for tomorrow. It has something that you can hope in today. And what is it that we can place our hope in? If you go back up to the first part of the sentence, He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I want you to think about what this means as we think about this text. Who is the basis of our hope? God. God is the basis of our hope. That's why he says, blessed be the God. And then he says, according to his, he says that we have the basis of our hope is God. And how do we receive that hope? By God's mercy. Do you see that there in the text? According to his great mercy. So it's not my mercy. It's not your mercy. It's not my ability. It's not your ability. It's by God's mercy. Now I know you've heard me tell you this before, but I'm going to keep telling you until I feel like every one of you memorized it. There's a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. You may say, aren't they the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. They're different. And when he's talking about mercy, it's because he realizes that every single one of us deserve mercy punishment. Every single one of us deserve hell. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. So every single one of us deserves death and eternity in hell. But it is God's mercy that does not give us what we deserve. How does he give us mercy? Spence, well I'm glad you asked. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now when he talks about the resurrection, he just assumes that you understand what he's talking about, the resurrection. When he's referring to this, he's referring to the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is tying these all in two to say, because Jesus lived this sinless life, because Jesus took the punishment and the penalty of sin, owed me and owed you, because he died on the cross, because he was buried in the grave three days, and he arose from the grave, resurrected, he fulfilled what God had told him to do, he fulfilled that ministry that God had sent him to do, and now he has earned the right to be the propitiation for our sins. He has earned the right for you to be forgiven. And that's why we have hope. We don't have hope because of your personality. We don't have hope because of your ability. We don't have hope because of your knowledge or because of your intellect. We don't have hope because of the building or the facilities or the money or the possessions. Our hope is built upon, based upon God's mercies and Christ's resurrection. 
That's what our hope is built upon. And yet so many times we start to think, oh no, Spence, I got hope in other places. I got hope in my retirement. Your retirement can get hopeless pretty fast. Oh no, no, my hope, I've got in all these certain stocks and I've got in all this until the computer error winds up and you are on the short end of the computer error. Well, my hope is built upon my job. I'm going to tell you that everybody is replaceable. I was looking at one of those young men Saturday morning as they were getting ready to leave for Trinity and I said to that young man, I said, well, what are they going to do without you this week? He said, I don't know, I'm pretty irreplaceable. <laughs> You'll learn everybody's replaceable. Everybody is replaceable. No matter who you are, what you are, I don't care how important you think you are, everybody is replaceable. So he reminds us, he reminds us that our hope is not based upon us. Our hope is not based upon this church. Our hope is not based upon a donkey or an elephant. Our hope is not based upon a medical advancement. Our hope is not based upon a virus or a vaccine for a supposed virus or a supposed vaccine for a supposed virus. Our hope is not built on any of that stuff. Our hope is built upon God. So when we come to church, it's not because we hope that we're going to get something that we're looking for or we hope that it's a good day. We have hope because we have a God. And then what comes with that salvation? Oh, notice he says there in verse 4, he says to an inheritance. So how do we have that hope? By God's mercy, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, in an Inheritance. He says this is a gift to you. Now you think about an inheritance. We understand what an inheritance is. It's you getting something that you didn't deserve. Well, some people think they deserve it, but the reality is nobody deserves it. You get something that was a gift. Something somebody else earned on your behalf and gave to you. It was something that you did not earn. It was something that, quite frankly, most of you did not deserve. And quite frankly, something that you did not give yourself. It was a gift upon from someone else to you. It's an inheritance. And that's how Peter refers to this gift of salvation. That it's an inheritance. But it's not a regular inheritance. Notice how he talks about this inheritance. Verse 4. He talks about it being imperishable. It means it doesn't go bad. It's not like milk that you put in the refrigerator long enough and it starts to get blinky and you start to look at the day and you're like, oh, I don't know if it's good or not. And then you take a little drink and you're like, oh, I'll cook with it, but I won't drink it. You know, it's one of those things that's perishable. You look at the cheese and the cheese got some blue spots on it. So if you're a good parent, you just cut those blue spots off and go to feed them. That's, that's the next thing on the menu. The same thing with the bread. I mean, you have things that we know are perishable, but he's not talking about this inheritance being perishable. It's not dependent upon your good works. You've heard those uh, grandparents before say, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to write you out of my will. Guess what, Grandma and Grandpa? God's will does not exclude me at any point for anything I've done. God knows I'm a scoundrel and he still gave me an inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable. This inheritance, notice it says, is undefiled, which means that no one can deter. No one can um, devalue it. No one can take away from it. It is unfading. Timeless. And it's kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Which means that every single one of us have the opportunity of knowing that our eternity is secured in heaven when we've placed our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ. And who is keeping your inheritance for you? God. You don't have to get excited. That's fine. I'm going to get excited about it. 
Because I know that my salvation is not based upon me. I know that I did not earn my salvation. I know that I can't lose my salvation or try to regain my salvation because my salvation is based upon God and His work through the Son, Jesus Christ. It's an inheritance that is being kept in heaven by God. I know those things are untouchable. You get a safety deposit box and you put your valuables in that safety deposit box in that bank vault and you assume that that is there and no one can touch it. Oh, this is so much better than a bank vault and a safety deposit box. This is so much more untouchable than any kind of heresy or false doctrine can lead you to. It's more than the guilt and the doubt can break you from this idea that we have a hope in God and God is holding our eternity secure in heaven for us because of his love for us. So he talks about this hope. He talks about this hope that we have. I don't know which side of the aisle you're on, so I don't want to try to pick sides. I have a side. I'll be happy to tell you afterwards what my side is. But I don't want to pick sides, but I'm just going to tell you some facts. Months ago, they came out with this vaccine for this virus for COVID. This side questioned the effectiveness of it. This, this side says everybody should have it. I don't know what size you're on. It's not a gospel issue. But I can tell you that it was presented as saying, hey, this is the answer for the problem. And then they came out and said, well, now you're going to have to have a booster. <clears throat> well, and now it may not protect against this Delta variant. And now it may be this. And now it may be this. And maybe you need to get this and this and this and this. It's all these ideas that come out and leave people, quite honestly, in a state of confusion. And you are wondering, what do I need to protect myself? What do I need to do to stay healthy? And we are on all sides of the aisle. Here's what I can tell you with definitive assurance and fullness of confidence in my heart. That's not how God's salvation works. You don't need a booster. You don't need a follow-up. You don't need a second opinion. You don't need a different strain. You have all you need when you place your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. So he says we have hope. We have hope, but not just that. But notice he goes on and he says we have faith. You, brother and sister this morning, Christian, you have hope and we have faith. Where does he talk about that? Verse 5. He talks about this faith. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's reminding us that this hope, this hope that we have in our salvation is based upon this faith. This faith that we have from whom? Who brings, who is bringing us this faith? He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So once again, our hope comes through God and our faith comes from God. What do you mean, Spence? My faith comes from God. Just think about this for a second. You sit down in the chair that you're sitting in right now. Did it require faith in God to sit in that chair? You came in this room. You assume you came through those set of double doors and you assume there was enough oxygen in here to support all of us. Did it require faith in God to walk in this room? assume that this ceiling was going to stay in its place. You assume the lights were going to stay in their place. All of these things required some level of faith. Now you may say, well I just had to have faith in the chair that the faith was going to do it. I just had to have faith in common sense that there would be enough oxygen. I just had to have faith in the building that the, the construction was able to do it in such a way that it was hold up. I have faith because it's been standing now for a number of years and haven't had any problems and oh, I didn't have to have faith in God to do that. But I ask you, where did that assurance come from? God gave you the intellect. 
God gave you the knowledge. God gave you the understanding. God gave you the eyeballs. God gave you the wisdom. God gave you the discernment. God gave you all of those things. So whether we attribute our faith in this world to our faith in God, ultimately all faith comes from God. Because apart from God, you have no knowledge. Apart from God, you have no understanding. Apart from God, you have no discernment. You have no wisdom. Apart from God, you have no understanding about anything in this world. And so the writer here, Peter says, this faith that you have, it starts in God and it points you to God. And yet we have people today that have a lot more faith in other things in this world. And, and they think that God's, their faith in God is negotiable. Nowhere do you ever see where God, faith in God is negotiable. You assume the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Why? Are you causing the sun to come up? Did you put the sun where it was at? Did you put that sun on that cycle? Did you put your, yourself in relation to the sun so that you could be there when the sun came up? All of this stuff is from God. So he says, believer, not only do we have hope, but we have faith. And this faith comes from God. And how do we get this faith? Notice he says there in verse 5, this guarded through faith for a salvation. Not only do we get faith from God, but we get faith in our salvation. Your faith comes when you believe in God, when you believe in Jesus and who Jesus said he was and what Jesus said he was going to do and you trusted that I needed to be forgiven of my sins. That dying in my sins was going to lead me to hell and I trusted by faith. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I believed in what God said about Jesus. I believed in what Jesus did for me. I, by faith, trusted in Jesus Christ and that salvation came to me. And I have that faith, not because I can touch it, not because I can feel it. In fact, he says, <clears throat> there in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved of various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells them that this faith that God gives you, it's not just for salvation. This salvation that God gives you is for the days to come. This faith that you need is when you don't understand the seasons or the times. You don't understand the doctor's diagnosis. You don't understand the drama that is taking place in the world around you. You don't understand the decisions of your loved ones. You don't understand the sin that's taking place around you. You do not understand. You can by faith say, I trust that God does. I trust that God knows what he's doing. I trust that God has a plan. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of things that are going on is the result and the effect of sin. When sin enters into the world, corruption, decay, disorganization, rampant rebellion is to follow. So some of these things that we see going on around us is just simply the result of sin. One of the co-workers I said, that I was around the other day said, you play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. We were sitting down there on Main Street just yesterday and a guy I graduated high school with that sells pickles now on side gigs there on Main Street, he came and he said, it was raining, and he said, you ready to go down to Sewer Pond? I looked at him, I said, them days are behind me. Once upon a time, you would catch me going down to Sewer Pond, playing dumb games and getting dumb prizes. And there's some people in this world today that they play dumb games and they get dumb prizes. They make dumb decisions. They do dumb things. They do things that are nowhere in 
obvious disobedience and rebellion against God and then they wonder why they get dumb prizes. Let me just encourage you that this faith that we have in God is not just for today, it's for tomorrow. So when those times come, those moments come and you go, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe it is God's way of testing you. Maybe it is God's way of strengthening you. Maybe it's God's way of developing you. Maybe it's God's way of showing his glory through your obedience when someone else is watching. You have no idea what God is doing, but by faith, if we believe that God can save us, if we believe that God did save us, why can't we have faith that God can take care of our tomorrow? He said, we have faith. We have hope. We have faith. But here's the one that you all aren't getting. I can already tell this morning, you all are not getting this one. Not only do we have hope, we have faith, but we have joy. We have joy. Now some of you all haven't heard this before, and I understand. I can tell by some of your faces. You got a sour head in your mouth and you've been sucking it all the service long. I see it. I'm just going to tell you that some of you all need to realize that not only do we have hope and we have faith, but we have joy. Notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. He says, oh, I know you haven't seen God. Oh, I know you haven't necessarily touched God tangibly. Oh, I know you can't tell me what God looks like. I realize that we have the paintings of Jesus and we have the video descriptions of Jesus and chosen TV show. They have their idea of what Jesus looks like. The reality is, is nobody knows what Jesus looks like. Nobody knows what Jesus looks like in this room. Nobody knows. And yet he says, even though you don't see him, you can have joy. And notice what he says about the joy. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. He is saying, you are so happy you can't put it into words. So some of you say, well, since I can't put it into words, Spence, I just won't have any joy at all. I can take you to other place in scripture that reminds us that joy is not an option. When you know who you were before Christ, and you know who you are now in Christ, and you know what you are with Christ, joy is not an option. In fact, I can take you to place in the scripture if we had more time that I can say that I could actually, I believe, make a point from scripture to say if you don't have joy, that is a sign of your understanding of what God has done. And because you're not excited, it means because you don't understand who you were, what you are, and what you got coming. And brothers and sisters, we don't have joy. And notice he says, verse 8, Though you do not see him, you believe in him with joy, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, you have joy. Joy in what, Spence? Joy in a possession No, we have joy in our creator. That's why he says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. He's talking about our creator. He's talking about God the Father. He is saying, we have joy in God. Spence, how do you know that God exists? Because you are able to ask the question. Think about it. The reason why I know God exists is because you're able to ask the question. Because without a God, there'd be no creator. And without a creator, there'd be no you. Without a creator, there'd be no you to have the intelligence and the grace of God to ask a dumb question. The reason why I know there's a God is because I heard you say something that shows your ignorance about who God is. 
But we have joy in our creator, the fact that God created us. The fact that God put us together. The fact that men, God has given us some of the wives that we have and the parents we have, some of the children that we have. The fact that God would bring this many different people in this one room. There's enough different personalities in this room. The fact that we're all sitting here behaved is only explained by the grace of God. But we have joy in our creator. You get up in the morning and you're just grateful that you have breath. Heard one person once say one time they woke up on the right side of the grass so they were going to have joy today. Joy. Joy is not because everything's easy. I'm going to tell you, some of you know more than I do. Life has a way of stomping in your face. Life has a way of every time you take one step forward, knocking you two steps back. Life has a way of constantly putting guardrails and hindrances in front of you. I'm not saying that you have to have joy in every circumstance. I'm not saying that you've got to be happy about every situation you're at in life. I'm not saying that you have to always be cheerful because of everything that you're having to endure. But I will tell you that God tells us to have joy. Joy. Joy in our creator. Joy in our inheritance. That's what he says there at the last part of verse 8. Filled with glory. Inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Obtaining the outcome of your faith. When you know that you have an inheritance that is secured. When you know that it doesn't matter what they do to this body. I'm going to tell you. COVID can do whatever it wants to to this body. The government can do whatever they want to do to my income. I don't care what this world does. This world can do anything they want to me physically. They can't touch me spiritually. The worst thing that Swiss world will do to me is send me to God faster. That's it. Because it doesn't matter what is taking place. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with. I don't care if you're anorexic, bulimic, overweight, obese. I don't care if you got mental health issues. I don't care if you have abuse issues. I don't care if you got husband issues. I don't care if you got wife issues. I don't care if you got kid issues, boss issues, employer. I don't care. The worst thing this world can do to you it's physical. Because this world can't touch my spiritual hope. This world can't touch my inheritance for eternity. The worst thing that can happen to you is you go to heaven. Okay, maybe it's not that great of a place. Maybe, I, maybe I'm misreading. Maybe, maybe I've been misinformed. Man, I read these stories about the martyrs and these folks that just got up and preached Jesus and there were those in the crowd that said no we're not going to let you do that so they would take them and then actually tie them to a wooden stake and then actually light a fire underneath their body and they would sit there and burn to death I'm not, taking, I'm not talking about a firing squad that you get shot in a few seconds and you're out I'm not talking about being hung where normally you snap in the neck and Fairly short-lived. I'm not talking about the guillotine knife that falls down and your head is decapitated in a few seconds and you're done. I'm talking about sitting there being burned alive and these individuals are sitting there quoting scripture or singing hymns. I don't know how they do that. I don't understand how they do that. Or others that have tragedy come to their life. And yet, they still glorify God. They have struggles come and still glorify God. When I think of the writer that sang the song, It Is Well With My Soul, wasn't the story about him that he had lost a whole family at sea. 
And as he's coming back across on the ship, that very same spot that his loved ones had died caused him to sit down and write, as well with my soul. Talk about Fanny Crosby and how she went blind and yet she was still writing hymns even in her blindness. Much of the hymns that we have in our common day hymnals. These people, and I don't know how they did it because I don't know how you go through with it, but these people that deal with them. Adam Judson lost multiple children and multiple wives on the mission field and yet he still remained faithful. Why? Because they had a joy. A joy that was not based upon their circumstances. A joy that was not based upon their environment. A joy that was based in their creator, in their inheritance, and a joy that was based upon upon their future. Notice he says in the last part of verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says you can have joy because you know the end of the story. You know the end of the story. You know how this is going to end. This isn't a question mark. This isn't a coin flip. You know how this ends. You may say, well, Spence, I don't know how this ends. Well, let me just read to you how this ends. Revelation 21, verse 3. Now take in mind, these are for those that are in Christ. These are those that are saved. You're here this morning and you're not saved. This can be you when you get saved. But I want you to know, if you are saved, this is true about you. Listen to the end of the story. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So what he's saying at the end of Revelation, John is writing and saying this is how it's going to end. There's going to become one day of God, one day coming when you will be with God. Why? Because there will not be sin. There will not be that separation caused by sin. You will be with God. And what does it mean to be with God? No pain, no struggling, no crying, no drama, no division, no politics, no sickness, no arthritis, no false prosthetics, nothing. Everybody will be perfect like God created us and we will be with God for an eternity. And we can have joy because that is our future. Oh, I struggle. I had some knee surgery here a while back, and I don't know how it is for camera, but I had a knee surgeon there messing with my meniscus. Orthopedic doctor said, okay, everything's good. And now here lately, I don't know if it's because, you know, I'm just, you know, the muscular, the amount of muscle I'm carrying, I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, that meniscus starts popping again, and I'm thinking, I ain't doing another knee surgery. I'm just going to cut the thing off. I'm just going to become like Andy. More just... <laughs> I ain't going through that thing again, and I'm thinking I'm only, you know, I'm only 40 years old. I still got a lot. To, I got still got a lot more time to go. And I think back to go. You know, there's gonna be one day, and there's only just be one day. It's gonna be one day, and one day, and one day, and one day, and a thousand days, and a hundred thousand days, and then a million days, and then five million days, and then ten million days, and we're gonna get tired of having so many days that we're gonna stop counting them as days because it won't matter if it's a day or not because it's just the rest of our lives for eternity that it won't matter. That is our future. And that is a joy that we can have because of what God has done for us. What do you have this morning? What do you have? Do you have hope in who you are in God? What Christ has done for you? Do you have faith? And no matter what the situation, the circumstance, that God has a plan and God has a purpose. 
and God will take care of you? Do you have joy? That regardless of the current situation, you know that you can have joy in God. What do you have this morning? Bow your heads with me.